in my life, I've been to two different places where natural disasters have occurred. I went to New Orleans my freshman year with some people from college after Katrina. And then last year, I went to Joplin with a group from this, this church and some other churches. And to stand in these just absolutely demolished areas and to just see the way it's affected so many people is something that I'll never forget. And one of the things that you learn when you go there is that as strange as it sounds, and you really won't understand it unless you went, you learn that destruction and death and pain all have a sound. And it's just this eerie silence. There's no electricity, so there's no humming. There's no kids outside playing. There's no uh, cars going by. There's no trees, so there's no birds chirping. It's just eerie silence everywhere. And I remember sitting in these situations both times just completely saddened by what I saw because I knew I wasn't just standing in the middle of these houses or, or what used to be houses. I, I was standing where people had lived. I was standing in areas where people had died and their dreams had died and that their memories had been washed away or blown away. But I can't imagine how much more terrible I would feel if that was, wasn't some place that I went to visit and got to come home, but it was home. If it was here in Bowling Green or in my hometown, I can't imagine that a concrete slab where I knew someone's house would be all, became, all of a sudden became someone that I knew and their house had been blown away. And that, that store that was so badly demolished wasn't just a store. It was the place that I used to go after school. And so I can't imagine the pain and anguish that the prophet Jeremiah is feeling when he writes Lamentations. He's looking around Jerusalem, and I can't help but think that he, he hears the sound of destruction. But for him, there was so much more that was going on. Let's read Lamentations chapter 1. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she who was once great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are upon her cheeks. Among all of her lovers there is none to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed feast. All her gateways are desolate, her priests groan, her maidens grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. Her foes have become her masters, her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. All the splendor has departed from the daughter of Zion. Her princes are like deer that find no pasture, in weakness they have fled before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and wandering, Jerusalem remembers all of the treasures that were hers in the days of old. When the people fell into enemy hands, there was no one to help her. Her enemies looked at her and laughed at her destruction. Jerusalem had sinned greatly, and so had become unclean. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns away. Her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. Look, O Lord, on my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. You read the words of Jeremiah, and you understand that he, what he has seen 
is his city, the city of Jerusalem, the city of God where God's temple stood, is in ruins. And more than that, the people that were supposed to be there weren't there. There was an occupying force that had taken over. This was the promised land. This is the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this was the land that God had made for his people. And the original plan was for God to rule his people and for his people to live in submission to him. And yet here Jeremiah sat in the city, and it was anything but what it was meant to be. Revisionist history is 2020, and so we, we look back and we say, well, if only, if only the Israelites knew that this was going to happen, they probably wouldn't have made the decisions that they would have made. If they knew this was going to happen, they would have never appointed Saul king or asked for a king in the first place. But the thing is, they did know. Years before the promised land was inhabited by the Israelites, Moses gave a list of blessings and curses in Deuteronomy 28. And in these blessings and curses, he says this. He says, if you follow God, if God's the first priority of your life and you, you, everything that you do is centered around him, that you'll live in peace and prosperity and you will not have any needs. It's a very short part. But there's a longer section of curses. And in this section of curses, Moses says this. If God ceases to be the head of you, not just you as a person, but you as a nation. If this nation, if the Israelites start to go after their own selfish desires, there will be repercussions. And in a very haunting prophecy, Moses tells them exactly what's going to happen, starting in verse 49. He says this, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. They will devour the young of your livestock and the crops of your land until you are destroyed. They will leave you no grain, new wine, or oil, nor any calves of your herds or lambs of your flocks until you are ruined. They will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. They will besiege all the cities throughout the land the Lord your God is giving you. The prophecy, the, 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 the promise that Moses foretold before the Israelites even got into the promised land comes into fruition as Jeremiah looks upon the city of Jerusalem, and he writes Lamentations. Some people say that Israel forgot their God. But I don't think that that's entirely accurate. I mean, if you read Scripture, every time they messed up, they were the first to quote Scripture, right? Anytime they made God mad, they were the first to say, Lord, you promised our forefathers. And then they would quote from Scripture what God had told their forefathers. So it was there. I mean, they had the temple of God. It was a beautiful, beautiful temple. It, it was the, the crown jewel of Jerusalem. People living in Jerusalem would see it every day. God wasn't absent. God wasn't forgotten. He was just... He was just hanging around. And that's the problem. God wasn't the center of what they did. He was just there in case they needed him. 
He was there in case they needed to be bailed out. He was just hanging around. And the same thing happens in our life. There are avenues and aspects of our life in which we just allow God to hang around. But what we need to learn from the nation of Israel and the fall of the kingdom is that the same fate awaits our life if God's not the center of it. You see, there's a process that goes on. First is this, is when God's just hanging around, we're easily distracted. As some of you know, um, you may not know, I'm the, the proud father of the most awesome, cutest, and best little boy in the entire world. Um, and I know that, that everyone thinks that about my son, too. So, um, but, but there's so many things you learn about God, really, in being a parent. But there's some truths that even at seven months old, my son's teaching me. And in studying for the sermon, he really helped me out this week. Uh, we, he's old enough to, to sit up, strong enough to sit up. And so we can put him down with, with one toy. And Patterson can spend literally 40 minutes playing with that one toy. Now, we might have to go and get it if he throws it and it rolls, but he can f spend plenty of time playing with it. But there are times which his mom and I need to do important things, like watch our favorite television shows. And so we put every toy imaginable around him. And the strangest thing happens. That same toy that he could spend 45 minutes with, he picks up, he looks at, and he discards after about 20 seconds. Because there's so many other things to get to. And it's really cute when it's my son and when it's a baby. But it's really sad when it's my life. You see, we can spend time one-on-one -on -one with God. We can sit and read his word. We can know that everything that we need will be taken care of by God. And everything that we do is through him and considering him and the ways we can serve him in all our decisions. But then we get things that get in the way. These things might not even be bad things, but they're things that we elevate to his status, and then they do become bad things. And all of a sudden, the, the God that we spent so much time with is just one of the things, and the time that we spend with God decreases as the time we spend doing everything else increases. Patterson's favorite toy might be in this pile of toys, but he may never get to it because there's so many other things there. And in the same manner, we may have God hanging around our lives, but we never get to him because there's so many other things. This is what happened to the nation of Israel. They put so many other things above God and focused on so many other things that they got distracted from who they were supposed to be. And the next thing that happens is that after distraction comes stumbling. When God's just hanging around, we stumble. Now you guys know that I'm not really thrilled about outlines. I feel like you should write down what sticks out to you rather than what I tell you to, but I have to do it. So 
there was one little blank there, and so I, I chose the word stumble. It's not exactly what I mean, but it's the best word I can come up with. I want you to put a little asterisk there or a little footnote marker, and I want you to define it as this if you're following along. It's not so much the fact that when God's hanging around, we sin. It's that, it's that we just we don't care that we sin. We feel no shame in that we sin. We feel no shame about sinning. I'll, I'll put it a little bit like this, and I'll continue to use my family as illustrations, but um, if you had visited Lindsay in, in my house a year ago, um, we would have cleaned it for you, and, and everything would have looked really nice. And if there was just one thing that was out of place, we would have apologized up and down for it. We would say, oh, we're sorry we didn't get to this, or I'm sorry that this is in your way, and and leave it at that. If you came to our house today, just ask that you watch your step. Just just watch your step. Patterson stuff is all over the house. Um, it's just going to be a mess after you leave if we clean it up, so we're just going to leave it out there. And whatever you do, there's one room that you do not need to go in because if you open the door of it, everything's going to fall on top of you. All right, so stay away. Once again... Funny story, cute story about my house, sad story about my life and our life. If we are one-on-one -on -one with God and God is our sole focus, sin doesn't really entice us. We don't need these things that the world throws at us. We don't need these things that are sinful because we have God and, and nothing else matters. But even when it's just God and a couple other things, we, say, we see these other things and we notice that God's looking at it and we say, God, we're sorry about this. God, I'm sorry that, that this part of me is a mess. Can you clean it up? But when we put so many things around us, it's like we're telling God, just step over that. It's going to be a mess so we're just going to leave it a mess. And God, whatever you do, don't go in that room. That room's off limits to you. That's what happened to the nation of Israel. They started not even caring that God was there. They just started doing whatever they wanted to do. Because he was just hanging around. People would go right by the temple on their way to do whatever sin they were going to do. For some strange reason, we have started believing that the time that God looks at us is in some way directly related to the amount of time we spend looking at him. We believe that just because God is an integral part of our lives and we only spend a little bit of time with him every once in a while, that's the amount of time that God sees us too. But the truth is, that's not the way it works. God is always watching us because he is a jealous God and wants to be in our lives. But we put so many things in front of him, it makes it seem like he's not watching, and therefore we feel like we can do whatever we want to do. From distraction to stumbling comes the eventuality of it all. When God's just hanging around, everything falls apart. 
we know in Scripture that it tells us that if we build our house, our foundation on anything other than God, it's going to fall down. But here's the problem. There, there, are, people, there, are, there are people here today who have been playing with fire for so long, and they haven't been burnt yet that they don't think they ever will be. There are people in this room who have gotten away with everything under the sun, and they have faced no repercussions for having everything else in their lives other than God, that they believe that one of these days they're going to get away with it. But if there's anything that this Bible teaches us, whether you explicit, whether it's explicitly said or whether it's through a story, it's this. It's that if anything is in front of God, it will let you down. And when it lets you down, when it comes to a crashing halt because God is just hanging around your life, you're going to look like the prophet Jeremiah looking back at your life and asking the question, what happened here? Because this isn't the way it was supposed to be. And so the question I need you to answer today is this. Where is God just hanging around in your life? Is your social life, is God just hanging around your social life? I mean, you're the first to retweet a Bible verse or share that nice little picture of Jesus with the inspirational quote on Facebook, but we're the last person to actually share Jesus with anybody else. We'll put bumper stickers on our car, but we'll take that same car to places that fulfill our sinful desires rather than take us away from the things that drag us down. We are the first person to gossip and slander and cut down, but the last person to stand up for someone who's broken. But we're not atheists. We're not atheists. We believe that there's a God that's great, but he's just hanging around. He has no influence on your life whatsoever. Is God just hanging around your social life? And if he is, I want you to know that sooner or later, those things that you are investing yourself in and those things that you're lifting up to such a high priority because it makes you feel good and it makes you feel like you belong will leave you absolutely empty and devastated. What about this? Is God just hanging around your marriage? Is God just hanging around your relationship? Is God just hanging around your relationship with your children? Oh, we weren't like the pagans. We got married in a church. We had scripture read there. There's little plaques all around our home with Bible verses. And that is the exact problem. That God only exists around your home, not at the center of it. Is what you expect out of your spouse the same thing God expects? Or do you expect them just to do whatever you want them to do to make you feel better? Is it all about what they can do for you or what you two can do together for the kingdom of God? What about your relationship with your kid? Is the relationship with your kid built around sporting events, uh, you being a human taxi, uh, you uh, being the cool parent and letting them do what they want to do? Or, 
Or is your relationship with your kid built around God and the desire for them to know God as intimately as you do for all of their life? And I'm just going to be upfront and honest with you. I know that this isn't happening in so many cases, in so many families here. Every week, we print out these, these handouts to go home with your children for you to have intentional conversations about the lesson that week and about God in general. It's, in, it's made so that you can make every moment with your child a chance for you to grow together and to grow in God. And the shame of it all is that week after week after week, we end up with as many papers as we started with. Is this the extent of how much God is influencing you that you just drag them to church and get a check mark? Or is God the center of your relationship? Because if he isn't, you will look back one of these days when your marriage is completely destroyed and ask what happened. You're going to look back when your relationship with your children is completely destroyed and you're going to wonder what happened here. And that what had happened is God was never the center of it. And it was doomed to fail and fall apart. What about this? Is God the center of your spiritual life? I mean, that's an easy answer, right? You're here, so obviously he's first. The truth is that whether we want to admit it or not, there's so many of us who come here just because we want to get that check mark to say we came to church here and hope that the good that we do in our life outweighs the bad so that in some way we can have more good than bad so we don't go to that bad place when we die. The truth is we come here because we want to make a show about it. The truth is we come here just to amass amounts of knowledge so we can debate back and forth rather than using that knowledge with God at the center of our actions to go and change people's lives and show them that God loves The truth is if God isn't the center of everything that you do here in this building or in your spiritual life in general, then one of these days you're going to look back at the church. You're going to look back at the people who went there, and you're going to look back in God and be completely burnt out because it burned you and because it let you down. But the thing you won't be able to admit is that it let you down because it was all about you. A few chapters after chapter 28, chapter 30 in Deuteronomy, Moses starts off the chapter by saying, when you're far away, when God has dispersed you from the promised land so far away, I want you to know that all you have to do is turn back to God, obey his commands, and live. And then you can come back. It's what we call grace. The best thing that we have going for us is our God is a jealous God. God is jealous. He is sovereign, but he wants to be first in your life. And he will do and has done anything to get you back. That's the point of the cross. God wanted a way for people to be able to come back and be found in him. 
and for him to be the first and foremost in our life, that every decision that we make goes through him and is blessed by him. I don't know how far you are this morning. Maybe in some aspects of your life you're closer to God being the sinner than in other aspects. But in one, one, one way, shape, or form, we are all not the people that we're supposed to be. We're not in the promised land. But the beautiful thing about grace and the beautiful thing about a jealous God is that he has made a way for us to get back. Today, is the decision that you need to make is this. Am I going to make Christ, if I'm going, am I going to make God the focus of my life? Or am I going to continue to allow him just to hang around? Because the answer to that question leads to one of two ends. Either we choose to let him hang around and face destruction, or we put him first and experience freedom. That decision is up to you. Do not leave this place today if God's not the center of everything you do.